Thank you for listening so well. That was good. I'm going to let you, boys and girls, go out to Sunday school just now. And while you're on your way out, the rest of us are going to turn to read God's Word together. And we're going to have two short readings, both from uh, the books of Samuel, one in 1 Samuel, one in 2 Samuel. So please turn, first of all, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to read verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go if Saul hears that he will kill me? And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And then if you turn forward into 2 Samuel chapter 7. This, uh, this chapter takes us much further on in the life of David. Uh, when he is established uh, as king in Jerusalem. Second Samuel 7, we'll read verses 1 to 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, that's David, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to the readings of his word. Just before we turn to these passages together, let's just pray together for a moment. Father, as we turn to your word just now, we do so asking for your help. We pray that um, you'd help us uh, to see more of you and of everything that you've done for us through your Son, our Lord Jesus. But help us also to see more of ourselves. And may your word speak to us and teach us and change us and encourage us and guide us in all the ways that we need. We look to you and pray that you'd pour your blessing about, out upon us all, that we would hear your voice speaking to us, and that you'd lead us all closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over our time together this weekend, um, I'm wanting us to have um, to have a big panoramic view of the Old Testament and to see how that great story of the Old Testament fits together and how ultimately it points us towards Jesus Christ. Sometimes the Old Testament can seem a bit obscure um, and sometimes we can be familiar with little parts of it, um, but we struggle to see how everything fits together. And often um, we can find ourselves in, in the depths of the Old Testament a wee bit disorientated and a wee bit unsure as to everything that's going on. And I'm hoping for us uh, to spend a bit of time this morning and this evening, uh, just as we did on Friday, thinking about the big picture of the Old Testament and focusing especially on some of the key events that took place. Uh, on Friday, we spent some time uh, looking at the Exodus and we thought about uh, Moses and, and the Israelites as they came out of Egypt and how that, um, how that fitted into God's great plan of salvation. It was a wonderful demonstration of God's power as he saved his people from Egyptian slavery. But all of that is pointing forward to Jesus as uh, our great Redeemer, the, ones who, the one who delivers us from slavery to sin. Tonight we're going to be looking at Jeremiah and some of the events that took place in his lifetime. Uh, that's another big event in the Old Testament. Uh, this morning, though, we're looking at maybe the biggest one of all. This morning, we're going to be thinking about David and how everything in the Old Testament, how he fits in to everything that takes place in the Old Testament and how he points us towards Jesus. Um, we read two passages um, and we'll maybe be flicking between the two of them as we go through. Uh, let me just read again um, a few verses from 1 Samuel 16. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains the young, yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We're going to ask four very simple questions. Um, thinking about the big story of the Old Testament, our four questions are, what's the story so far? What's the story at this point? What's the bigger story? And what does it mean for your story? And you may remember that we asked the same questions on Friday, and we'll ask the same questions again tonight. So, what's the story so far? Well, the Bible begins with creation. God made an extraordinary universe, and that universe was to be a beautiful homeland for humanity. But that's immediately followed by the fall. Humanity rebelled against God, and as a result, 
creation and humanity is beautiful but also now broken. But in response to that, God does not abandon his creation. The Bible does not end in Genesis chapter 3, even though it could have. God does not give up and he initiates an amazing plan of salvation. That plan um, is initiated in particular when God chooses Abraham. God gives Abraham promises that he's going to have a family and that through this family all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. At the same time God promises Abraham uh, a land that his descendants are going to live in. And one of the great emphases of the life of Abraham is that he's done nothing to deserve it. Absolutely nothing. The promises that God gives to him are all because of grace. And we often refer to those promises as part of God's covenant of grace. So everything starts to look good with Abraham. But the years after Abraham are not positive. His descendants do grow into a nation. But that nation ends up as slaves in Egypt. And that brings us to Moses. God appears to Moses and he calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And here we see God's grace accompanied by God's astonishing power as he rescues his people and he brings them into freedom. But that freedom that they now have, the fact that they're no longer slaves, that they're out of Egypt, that freedom doesn't mean that they can just do whatever they like. That freedom means that they are free to be the people that God created them to be. And that's why they need the Ten Commandments. That's one of the next big things that happens. They're given to the Israelites to show them how to live as God's people. And so they've come out of Egypt and they're now being given instructions as to how they are to live as they prepare to enter the land that was promised to them. Now, notice the crucial pattern there that, they are, that the law comes after salvation. They're saved from Egypt, then they're given the law. And it's a, it's a very important pattern in terms of the whole Bible, the fact that, that we're not saved because we obey the law. It's not like the Israelites were super good in Egypt and God was saying, oh, these are really good people. Okay, I'll make them my people and I'll give them the land. No, they were saved while they were a mess. And it was because they were saved that they were given the law to live as God's people. And that's a principle um, that's crucial for us to remember. We don't obey God's law in order to be saved. We obey it because we have been saved by his grace. And the great principle that lay behind the law, behind the Ten Commandments, was that Israel were meant to be different from the rest of the world. They were to be a light to the nations. And that ties in with the promise made to Abraham that through his descendants they were going to bless other nations. Israel would be a light in a dark world. And so with that, they were being made ready to enter the promised land. You read about that in the books of Joshua and Judges as the Israelites move into the land of Canaan and bit by bit they're able to conquer the land. And it's a great moment because that's what God promised to Abraham. They're finally able to enter the land that they were that had been promised to them. But again, as with everything in the Old Testament, things are not as good as they should have been. And so the people were supposed to drive out the Canaanites. They didn't do it. And as a result, the, the, the other nations that remained in the, amongst the land influenced the people, drawing them away from God and seducing them with all their false religious practices that they had had in their culture. In that time, God called judges. He raised up judges to call the people back. But on the whole, it never lasted. The trajectory is downwards. The Israelites were constantly drawn away from God and copied the nations around them. And one of the biggest ways that they copied the nations around them was that they demanded a king. They said, everyone else has got a king. We want one as well. And that brings us to Saul, who you'd read about in the first half uh, well, in, in most of 1 Samuel. He was Israel's first king, as demanded by the people, but his reign was a tragic failure. And Saul is a very, very powerful example of the devastating effect of sin, because you, when you look at Saul, you see that he is both a victim and a villain. He suffers because of what the people demanded, 
and yet at the same time he himself causes huge problems by the mistakes that he makes. And all of this means that when you think about Old Testament history, you should be thinking about a line that's going down. The general emphasis of the Old Testament is that things are deteriorating. And the ultimate story of the Old Testament is one of failure. And so I want you to have that idea in your head. If, if you imagine Old Testament history as a graph, it's just generally going down, 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 down. But in the midst of that downward slope, there's wee peaks that poke up from time to time. Little moments, key things that happen, key people that God raises up, where things improve for a wee while, but then afterwards they deteriorate. As we said on Friday, all those peaks are signposts pointing forward to what God is going to do. So have that in your head, you've got a graph, Line coming down, we peaks down, we peak down, we peak down, we peak down. The biggest peak comes about halfway, and it's David. So that comes us, that takes us to our second question: What's the story at this point? Well, David is the biggest peak, the biggest upward peak in that general downward path, because at one level here things are looking really good. Abraham was told he'd have a great family. That's what's happened. Moses was promised that he would take the people out of Egypt. That's what's happened. Joshua was promised he would conquer the land. That's what's happened. Everything that God had promised had been fulfilled. At one level, everything looks really good. But at another level, everything is hanging by a thread. Because God's plan of salvation is now centered on this family nation in a small territory in Palestine under the leadership of Saul, who is gradually going insane. And all around them, there are nations threatening to attack. And so although at one level things look good, underneath things are very precarious. And it's at that moment that God raises up David as his chosen king. And we read two key passages from David's life in uh, 1 Samuel 16. We have this magnificent moment where Samuel goes to Jesse because he knows he's going to anoint uh, one of his sons as king. And then uh, the first seven all pass by. They all look impressive and yet God says to Samuel, it's none of them. And it's only when Jesse sends for the youngest one, who's so young and insignificant that Jesse hadn't even bothered to bring him in the first place. God says to him, anoint him. Says to Samuel, anoint him. For this is he. And then... In 2 Samuel 7, we, we come much later in David's life when, when he has become established as king in Israel. And God comes with this magnificent promise that, it, that David's royal line will be established and one of his descendants is going to reign forever. And for that reason, 2 Samuel 7 is one of the biggest chapters in the Old Testament. When you think of big chapters in the Old Testament, you've got Genesis 1, 2, 3, you've got Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Exodus 3, Exodus 20, Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 50, 31, 2 Samuel 7 is right there in that top 10 massive chapters in the Old Testament. And in the passage we read, there's a beautiful play on the word house. Because it starts with David saying, I need to make a house for God. And what he means by the word house is a temple. He wants, he wants to build a temple in Jerusalem where God will dwell. But God comes to him and says, no, 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 you're not going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. But this time, God doesn't mean house as in temple. God means house as in dynasty, a royal line descending from David. And that's exactly what happens. The royal line is established. So if we bring this big story together, in Abraham we see amazing covenant promises being given to a family. In Moses, that family has grown to the size of a nation and they're rescued from slavery. They're given a new way to live according to God's law. In Joshua and Judges, that family entered the promised land where they can dwell as a nation. And now in David, that family nation becomes a kingdom ruled by God's chosen king. Now, 
One of the things I want us just to spend a moment thinking about is the fact that, that, that when you look at David as king, in fact, when you look at the whole life of David and everything surrounding him in First and Second Samuel, you see two crucial principles being emphasized in regard to leadership and authority. And I want us to spend a wee moment thinking about them. First of all, in the life of David, you see that as far as God is concerned, when it comes to leadership and authority, your status and your gifts are nowhere near as important as your character. Your status and your gifts are nowhere near as important as your character. That's the fundamental principle set out in 1 Samuel 16.7. Don't look at his outward appearance. Don't look at everything that people look at because the Lord doesn't look in that way. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And David's greatest strength was that he was a man after God's own heart. He didn't have the status of being the firstborn son. He didn't have the stature of his brothers. And at the start of 1 Samuel 16, he's a complete nobody. He has neither status, reputation, nor influence. But his character was everything that God was looking for. That's the first key thing that we learn about leadership. The second key thing that we see in both the passages that we've read is that in God's eyes, there is a crucial link between ruling and shepherding. And this is something that you see many times in the Old Testament. A leader is described in terms of being a shepherd. You see it uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, 11, 2 Samuel 7, 8. David, um, there's reference made to David's life as a shepherd. And, and part of what makes him so suitable to be king is because he has served as a shepherd tending to sheep. That's a constant link being made in the Old Testament between ruling and shepherding. Why is that? Why is that link so important? It's important because it highlights two crucial things that God expects a king or a leader to do. He is to lead the people. So just as a a shepherd leads his flock, a king is to govern, guide and direct his people in the right path. And secondly, he is to protect the people. Just as a shepherd protects the flock, a king is to protect his people. The great role of a king in scripture is to be ruler and defender of the people. And that's two words I want you to always remember when you think of of a king in the Bible. Ruler and defender. David stands in the Old Testament as the greatest example of these things. A man after God's own heart with the right character, a shepherd ready to lead and protect the people. Now, I want to pause again here and just notice that that stands in astonishing contrast to what we see in the world around us today in terms of leadership. If you think about leaders today, character is almost irrelevant. Because you can have somebody in a position of leadership and it matters almost nothing if their private life is a mess. And there can be all sorts of scandals in the background as long as they're doing their role. As long as the outward stuff is good. As long as they are uh, ticking the right boxes in outward appearance then everything's fine. So character becomes pretty irrelevant today. Also today, there are few people in leadership who are seeking to lead and protect. And I think you'll see that if you think about it. If we think about people um, today in leadership, so often it's the case that instead of leading people, the world is full of leaders who want to please people. And that means, that, that manifests itself in the fact that, that, particularly in politics, people won't tend to say, what will I do if I get voted in? People will tend to be far more concerned thinking about, what should I do in order to be voted in? 
and they'll generally shape their policies in such a way as they think will get the most votes. And at the same time, instead of protecting people, the world today is full of leaders and the only thing they want to protect is themselves. God's way is so different. His people are to be different. His king is to be different. He chooses David, a man after God's own heart. And that's why David's the biggest upward spike in this picture we have of, of a downward line with little glimmers of hope along the way. David is the biggest upward spike in the story of the Old Testament. He's a wonderful uh, example of what God wants him to be. But it doesn't stay positive. Just like it was with Abraham, with Moses, it's the same with David. Things deteriorate again. And that's what takes us to our third question. What's the bigger story? If you go on to read about the life of the kings, um, if you read through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you'll see that something comes up again and again and again. Every king that comes after David is compared to David. And so he's the standard against which people are measured. And so you have some who follow in David's ways. Um, Josiah would be an example. Um, uh, First Kings, uh, sorry, 2 Kings 22 speaks about how he walked in the ways of his father David. But most of the kings weren't like him. Most of David's descendants, when they were measured against him, they failed. And so you have David as the high point in terms of God's kingdom. But after that, things gradually disintegrate the line keeps going down. And as we will see tonight, you reach the end of the Old Testament, there's no Davidic king on the throne. There's no independent nation. There's no peace from the enemies. And by the end of the Old Testament, the Jewish people are a tiny part of massive empires. First Babylon, then Persia, ultimately Rome. And so, in 2 Samuel 7, you've got this great promise that comes to David saying, one of your descendants is going to reign forever. And yet, 500 years after David, everything looks like it's over. If you stood in Jerusalem at the end of the Old Testament, you would say, the kingdom of God is gone. But after David, not only do we have a succession of generally failed kings, you also see the emergence of the prophets. And one of the key things that the prophets do is that they speak of a king who's going to come. I'm going to read an example to you from Isaiah. And as I read these two or three verses, I want you to listen for the king language and I want you to listen for the David language. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The prophets, like Isaiah, were telling the people, that a descendant of David, a son of David, is going to come as king. And of course, all of this is pointing forward to Jesus. All the spikes in the Old Testament, the positive moments in that downward path, they're all signposts pointing towards Jesus. And when you turn into the New Testament, when you come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, what is the first thing you are told about Jesus? Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. One of the very first things that the New Testament wants you to know is that Jesus is fulfilling all the kingdom promises of the Old Testament that were given to David. And so the kingdom was established with David. It fell apart under his descendants. In the midst of that destruction, the prophet spoke of a coming king who would take up 
the Davidic throne. So that means that the Old Testament ends with this enormous tension between the reality of a nation with no king, no power and no peace with the prophets, the promises of the prophets who had said that the kingdom would come. So Israel had the kingdom, it lost the kingdom, it's longing for the kingdom. And that is why when Jesus begins his public ministry, what is the first thing he says? The kingdom of God has come. And it all makes perfect sense Because Jesus has come as God's king. He has come as the descendant of David. He has come to reign on his throne. Everything that 2 Samuel anticipates is fulfilled in Jesus. But there is one big surprise. Imagine that you were a great uh, Old Testament scholar living uh, in uh, the first part of the first century. 2,000 years ago. If you had heard... Jesus say the kingdom of God is at hand you would be thinking brilliant we're going to get our nation back we are going to get the Romans out of here we're going to restore Israel's borders uh, to what they once were under David we're going to have a king on our own throne we're going to have an independent nation we're going to get back to the way things used to be that's what so many people expected that's what they wanted the Messiah to do but the big surprise is that that's not what Jesus has come to do at all He has come to do something way, way bigger. He hasn't come to make Palestine his kingdom. He's come to make the entire universe his kingdom. He's not come to be king among other kings. He has come to be the king of kings. He's not come to defeat the Romans or the Greeks or the Persians. He has come to defeat death and the kingdom of evil. And he's not come to make a great nation for the Jews. He has come to make a great family nation of all peoples. That means that when Jesus says the kingdom of God has come, he is talking about something that's mind-blowingly big. And it should come as no surprise. Because if you go all the way back to Abraham, this is the plan all along. That all nations of the earth shall be blessed And what that means is that Jesus has come to be the ultimate king, the ultimate ruler, and the ultimate defender. He's the one who's going to lead his people into a better way of living that's going to make them different from all the brokenness and evil in the world. He's the one who's going to protect and defend his people to the very end so that they are safe forever. He has come to establish a kingdom that extends whose borders extend right across the universe. A kingdom where the standards of justice and morality are at the highest level. A kingdom that will last all the way into eternity in total stability and security. That's the big surprise. It's not just to get back to the way things were with David. It's to make things so much bigger and so much better. But the most amazing surprise of all is that the reason he's doing all this is because of you. And that brings us to our last question. What does this mean for your story? I want to ask two sub-questions related to this. We're thinking about leadership we're thinking about a king. There's two, two massive questions that all of us here have to think about. First one is, what kind of leader do you want to be? And the second question is, what kind of leader do you want to have? And both of those questions are inescapable. So I asked the first one, What kind of leader do you want to be? And you might say to yourself, well, I'm not a leader, I'm just a nobody. That's not true. Everybody is a leader in some ways. So maybe in your home, you might be a parent. You might be an older sibling. Um, You might be a grandparent. At work, you may have people over you, but you may also have people under you. You certainly will have people alongside you that you have to work with And even in working with them, you have to lead in certain ways. Maybe as a volunteer, serving in the local community in some way. Even in this church, if you've just been coming a little bit longer than somebody else, 
you're going to be, that puts you automatically into a position of leadership. Some of us are in obvious positions of leadership, some of us not so obvious, but in the week ahead, every single one of us will lead other people in some way or another. And that's why we all have to ask the question, what kind of leader do I want to be? And the most important thing that God is expecting you to care about is your character. That's what matters most. God's not looking for leaders who are good at putting on an impressive outward performance. God is looking for leaders whose greatest quality is their heart. And that, of course, is instantly a huge challenge because it means that God's looking at all the stuff that no one else can see. But if you just think about it for a moment, you see that it makes perfect sense. You think about work, you think about homes, you think about the community, you think even about church life. How different all of these would be if our character was the thing that we all cared about most. And that's why I have to look at myself, and we all have to do the same. I have to look at myself and pray, pray that my greatest leadership quality would be my heart. That's what being a leader is all about in God's eyes. So that's a really important question for us to think about, just in practical terms, in terms of how we can apply this to our lives this week. But even more important, and even more inescapable, is the second question. What kind of leader do you want to have? And again, you might think, well, I don't have a leader. I just lead myself. Well, well, even in that answer, you're saying something. The truth is, every single one of us is led by others. And what I want you to do is to think about who you regard as a leader in your life. And then to even think about who do I consider to be the main leader that I look to. It might be somebody in your family. Maybe you look to your husband, to your wife. Maybe you look to parents, um, grandparents. Maybe you look to a colleague. Maybe you look to a celebrity who doesn't actually know you, but, but who you are, are quite impressed with. Um, maybe you look to a politician. Maybe you look to an author. Whoever it may be, I want you to think about, try and think about that. Who's the person who I would maybe look to most as a leader? And then ask yourself this question. Will they rule and defend me? Will they rule and defend me? And if they won't, or if they can't, Please recognize that Jesus can and Jesus will. Jesus will rule you with perfect wisdom, with gentleness, with justice, integrity, and love. And in his word, in the Bible, he's giving us all the instruction that we need to be beautifully different to a world around us that's so broken. Jesus will rule you so well and Jesus will defend you. He will defend you forever. The whole reason that he went to the cross was to defeat our greatest enemy, to save you from the power of sin, to secure you so that you will be safe Forever, that he can protect you and love you and care for you. When Jesus preached that he proclaimed the kingdom of God, that emphasis was, was, was central to everything that what he was going to do. He knew that he was coming as the son of David and he knew that he was God's chosen king. But I want to close with this. There was only one moment when Jesus wore a crown. He knew he'd come as king. He proclaimed the kingdom of God was at hand. But there was only one moment when he wore a crown. Can you remember where it was? It was at the cross. 
and it was a crown of thorns. And those who put that crown of thorns on Jesus did it to mock him because he looked so unking-like, didn't he? He'd been betrayed by one of his closest circle. He'd been handed over to a sham trial. He'd had all sorts of accusations made against him. He'd been condemned to death, stripped, mocked. They put this crown of thorns on him because he looked so unking-like. But the truth is, the cross was exactly the right moment for Jesus to wear a crown. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus defeats all his enemies so that he can rule and reign forever. And on the cross, there you see just how far King Jesus will go to defend you. He is the greatest king, our ruler, our defender. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our ruler and our defender. We pray that as we turn uh, to share in the Lord's Supper together just now in a few moments' time, that we would see more clearly all that you've done for us and that you'd lead us all, everyone here, to look to you as our great King. Amen. <coughs> We're going to sing together uh, in Psalm 24. And while we sing, the children will come back through from uh, Sunday school. Psalm 24, and we'll sing, uh, sorry, um, yes, Psalm 24, the Sing Psalms version. Sing Psalms version of Psalm 24, and we'll sing from verse 7. Psalm 24 on page 28. Ye ancient gates, lift up your heads, ye doors be opened wide, so may the King of glory come forever to abide. Of course, these words are speaking prophetically about Jesus, and as we sing them, we are acknowledging him as our great king. Seven to the end of Psalm 24, to God's praise.
I just want to take a couple of minutes uh, to say a few words um, about who the Lord's Supper is for. Um, and I think that's something that's really helpful for us to think through, and it's something that's very easy for us to, uh, to misunderstand. Um, uh, I, think that it's, uh, I think there's an awful lot to, to learn um, from uh, what we were looking at uh, regarding David, uh, particularly in 2 Samuel um, chapter 17. Chapter six, sorry, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, because in that chapter you had the, uh, the kind of uh, all too common mistake being made of looking at someone's impressive outward appearance and thinking, yes, that's, that's what we need to go by. And it's very easy to think um, that in relation to the Lord's Supper that, that the same kind of rules apply. So uh, the good Christians, the knowledgeable Christians, the ones who've had remarkable experiences, um, the ones uh, who are able to answer lots of complicated questions, the ones who are really good in their lives, the ones who don't make mistakes, that's the kind of people who should sit at the Lord's table. Yes? absolute rubbish none of that's true when it comes to sitting at the Lord's table the only place that God is looking is at your heart that's where he's looking because that's what he cares about and so uh, for all of you here for everyone who will come to share in the Lord's table. That's the thing that matters. And in terms of our hearts, um, there's maybe uh, two or three things that are helpful to think about in in relation to to the great theme of kingship that we've tried to uh, think about together today. Um, In our hearts, we need to recognise the king. So recognise that Jesus is king. That's that's crucial. Um, That, you know, we're not saying Jesus is just a little part of my life. Um, he's something that I pick up and put down when I need, um, but he's just one of many things that I find useful in order to go through life's journey. To be a Christian is, is, is not to think like that. To be a Christian is to, to recognize Jesus is king, my king, king over all. Second thing that, 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 that God's looking for in our hearts is a desire to bow down before the king. That's something that would be, be common, um, recognising a king's authority, bowing down before him. Um, but, but we know from scripture that our bowing down doesn't actually, uh, that doesn't, that's not to be directed towards any earthly king. Our bowing down, our homage, our worship is for Jesus. And, and in coming to the Lord's table, that's, that's what we want to do, that, that we um, we want to bow down before him, recognizing that he is king and gladly and joyfully worshiping him. And um, alongside that, we want to recognize the king, we want to bow before the king, we want to obey the king. And that's a key thing to remember that in coming to the Lord's table, we're, we're, we're just simply doing that um, because we want to follow Jesus' instruction. That that's our great desire. We want to obey him in our lives. Um, and we want uh, to fulfil this great commandment that he's given uh, to do this in remembrance of him. So um, coming to the Lord's table is, is for those who, who, uh, whose hearts can say, I recognise King Jesus, I bow before King Jesus, I want to obey King Jesus, and most of all, it's a heart that says, I need A heart that looks to Jesus knowing that just as we are totally dependent on food and drink to nourish us day by day, we are totally dependent on him in every part of our lives. That's what Jesus is looking for. None of this outward impressive appearance nonsense. The Lord looks on the heart. Amen. We're going to sing... um, together from Psalm 118 and uh, as we sing uh, I'll come down and uh, anyone who wishes to, to join at the table can do so um, we'll come to, uh, to sing these words and to prepare our hearts uh, for sharing and receiving uh, the sacrament together Psalm 118 uh, that's in the Scottish Psalter these uh, wonderful words that we, we very often sing at services like this 
uh, from verse 15 to 19. In dwellings of the righteous is heard the melody of joy and health. The Lord's right hand doth ever valiantly. Um, Let's sing verses 15 to 19 to God's praise. for the Lord's Supper uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, reading from verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. The Lord uh, gave thanks, and we'll follow his example. Let's bow our heads and give thanks. Lord Jesus, we have so much um, to thank you for. We thank you so much that we can have this time together, um, hearing your word and uh, thinking about everything that you've done for us. We thank you so much that um, we're able to share this bread and wine together. We thank you um, that you established that um, as a great, uh, a great reminder and as a great blessing for us um, as we go on in our lives as your followers. We thank you that you've provided this bread and wine and we pray that uh, you would bless it to us as we share in this supper together. We also thank you so much for one another for the amazing blessings of being in a family together as brothers and sisters. We thank you um, that we're able to share this meal together and we also thank you for all those who are with us watching on and, and we know that among them are those who belong with us and we pray, Father, that you would help them and 
draw them and encourage them to, to take that step <coughs> and to, be, to, to openly profess their faith. And for those who are maybe unsure where they stand before you, we thank you for them too. And we pray, Father, that they would hear your voice, that Lord Jesus, they would be drawn to you, that Holy Spirit, you'd be working in their hearts. We have so much for which to thank you. But above all, we thank you for the cross, for the resurrection, and for everything that you've done for us as our amazing King. Amen. Just as we uh, share uh, together, um, as we were saying to the children earlier, um, this is something that we share um, in both sadness and in happiness. Sadness, um, when we think of the cross and of all the agony and suffering that Jesus endured, the fact that the only crown that was put in him was a crown of thorns that caused him to bleed and that must have been agony. Sadness, when we think of everyone watching on, um, the betrayal, the suffering, the pain. Sadness, when we think of the agony that Jesus endured. Sadness, most of all, when we realize that it's our sin that made all of that necessary. But alongside that sadness, there is incredible joy. Joy because of everything that Jesus achieved on the cross. The fact that through that cross, every single sin is dealt with, washed away, and gone. Joy because it means that the kingdom of evil has been crushed and defeated forever. Joy because it means that death has been swallowed up in victory. Joy that it means that a, ble- a message of salvation can be proclaimed to all nations. And joy because of everything that it's pointing us towards. Towards that great day when King Jesus will return. And we will be with him and with one another forever. And so we rejoice that together as a family, we can share in this together. Yes, there's sadness at all that it involved, but there is so much joy at everything that it accomplished and everything that it promises. And as we share in the Lord's Supper together, I want you to think of those two great principles that are emphasized in regard to kingship in Scripture. The fact that Jesus is your ruler and that Jesus is your defender. He's your ruler. So that means that as we share the Lord's Supper together and as we go into this new week, as we go into the rest of our lives, we are living for Him. We're going to serve Him in our homes and in our private lives and in our jobs and in our community and in the most public things that we do, in everything we can live for Him because He's our ruler. But He's also your defender. And that means that you can hide behind Him. That means you can find all your security in Him. And that means that if you're sitting here at the table feeling guilty and inadequate and feeling like you're failed, all you need to do is take the bread and drink the wine and as you do so, Jesus is putting his arms around you yet again saying, I will defend you forever. And I'll never let you go. We share this supper because of our king, our ruler, our defender, Jesus Christ. We read that on the night uh, that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
And he did that because as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's pray. God our Father, Lord Jesus, blessed Holy Spirit, thank you. Amen. Our closing psalm is from Psalm 72 in the Scottish Psalter. And we'll sing the last three stanzas, um, the wonderful words of verse 17 to 19. Again, words that, um, although written long before Jesus came, 
yet speak so powerfully about him as our king. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall him call. Verse 17 to the end, to God's praise. His name Amen.